good to see you. How you doing? Good? All right. Let me pray for us. We've got a lot, a lot to cover this morning. Father, it is again a privilege uh, to come here uh, with your people, uh, called by your mercy and by your grace, uh, together to worship you, to surrender our hearts and our souls to you, uh, to surrender our minds and our wills to your word. And Lord, it's only by the work of your Holy Spirit that your word has any impact in our hearts, changing us into your image. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you do what only you can do and you make alive the living word of God. Let us be changed. Let us be transformed. I know the, I know the remaining pride and the remaining prejudice that remains in my heart. And I ask, Father, in your mercy to do work to kill it. Let us surrender ourselves to your word. Let us be changed by your power and let us reflect your son for your glory in this time for which you have called us into the city that you have called us. We ask this, that you may be made much of. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 22. If you have one of the Bibles that we offer up front or out on the side of this curtain here for free, take it. Uh, it's your gift. If you're using that, it's on page 283. Uh, if you're in my Bible, it's on page 329, but I don't know who that helps. Um, as you find the book of 2 Kings chapter 22, when you get there, take your bulletin. I want you to stick it right there in your Bible uh, to hold your place because we will get there in just a few minutes, but we've got some groundwork to lay as we get there. The Greek historian and philosopher Pericles, he said, what you leave behind, the legacy of a city, is not what is engraved on stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of her people. Pride, prejudice, and the gospel. That's what we're talking about. That's what Ray started last week. That's what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. Pride, prejudice, and the gospel. What what will we leave behind? What, what will we be found to have cultivated into the hearts of our people, into this city, when history stands and looks back at us? You know, Richmond, Richmond has cradled some of our nation's most powerful and most enduring legacies, legacies that all of us embrace, all of us cherish, all of us celebrate, legacies that have shaped the course of our nation for generations. You're probably familiar with this one. Listen. It is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We're apt to shut our eyes against the painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who having eyes see not and having ears hear not? the things which so nearly concern our temporal salvation. For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst of it and to provide for it. Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemy shall have us bound hand and foot? We are not weak if we make a proper use of the means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. Besides, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will rise up, friends, to fight our battles for us. The battle is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, and the brave. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear, peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it not, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. You're all familiar. Patrick Henry, March 1775, Richmond, Virginia, St. John's Chapel. Boats docked off the shores of this nation. In Massachusetts, the armies of the British ready to invade and to take over this new nation and this new colony. What seemed like an absolutely unformidable foe to most could be changed by the course of one colony, the Virginia colony, the largest landmass of the colonies at the time. And men huddled together in Richmond, Virginia and St. John's Chapel to debate and to argue whether or not we would commit our people, our colony, our sons to this great fight. And Patrick Henry stood up and delivered his 25-point 
debate as to why we should engage in this fight. And he put his papers down and he delivered what is one of the most famous speeches in all of American history right here in Richmond, Virginia, extemporaneously from his heart. Give me liberty or give me death. What is so sweet and so dear as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Was it not our freedom and our liberty? And under his voice, Thomas Jefferson, who would become the pen of the mighty revolution, and George Washington, who would be known as the sword of the revolution here in Richmond, Virginia, stood up and joined the cause for the fight for freedom, and the Virginia colony rose to the occasion and joined the battle of the revolution, and we know the rest of the story. Richmond, Virginia has been a place that has cradled some of our nation's most cherished and most powerful and most enduring legacies. Just down the street from St. John's Chapel, where Patrick Henry gave that amazing speech, down in the, the bottom area of our downtown, the building still used to be there, but it's not there anymore. But Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson holed himself up on the second floor of a house there and wrote the Statute for America's Religious Freedom, what would become the foundation for the religious liberties that we cherish and that we hold dear here that allow us to do what we're doing right now, all in Richmond, Virginia. I mean, this place has been the cradle for the seeds of transformation and change that we benefit from, that we cherish, and that we love. But the thing that we painfully forget, the thing that we often willingly forget, the thing that we often want to forget and not remember is that the fruit of those legacies did not grow up in this city by themselves. There were weeds and tares amongst that fruit. There were legacies as enduring and as powerful as those that were cherished by men like Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington that found their root and grew up in this city, that have wielded their influence upon this place for generations, and that we have exported to our nation generation after generation after generation. The legacies of freedom and justice were not the only legacies that were given birth here in this great city. There is a legacy of ethnic prejudice in particular that we would all rather forget. But that prejudice was woven into the hearts of this great city's people and exported on the backs of some 3.5 million estimated men, women, and children to the deep south and to the growing nation in chains and in shackles in the form of slavery. Long before Patrick Henry stood up in 1775 and gave that unbelievable address that, that stirred a colony to join the fight for religious, or for, for freedom and in the cause of this nation, this great place had already enacted laws as early as the middle 1600s, enslaving men, women, and children who would find their new home in this place, in this city. On the books of our legal record, it says, all servants imported and brought into this country, into this city, by sea or by land, shall be slaves, and as such shall be brought here and sold, notwithstanding, which means in spite of, a conversion to Christianity. In the 1600s, a slave could be given a, an excess measure of freedom if they would willingly be converted to Christianity and baptized, yet still seen as a slave. But by 1705, 70 years before Patrick Henry ever stood up and we ever engaged in the fight for our own freedom, in our own liberty, something we felt worth the price of such great sacrifice, men, women, and children were being shackled and enslaved and not given the common decency and liberty and freedom that they were so willing to fight for by then. At the close of the 18th century, Virginia politicians lobbied alongside international abolitionists to ban the taking of slaves from Africa. Sounds like a great cause. Sounds like a great thing. We changed the laws on our books by the early part of that 18th century to no longer allow foreign international slave ships to dock at the ports of Virginia and to be transferred up the river to the city of Richmond, but our motives were far from pure. Our motives were far from driven by the justice and mercy and grace of the Christianity of the gospel that we so arduently pushed on people. The politics and, and motives for those decisions are they're too great to go into, but as the corporate-sized industries of the Deep South began to grow and the, and the work of tobacco plantations and cotton plantations became larger and the need for equipment and labor became greater, the Virginia colony decided to shift its growth, to shift its crop to a less strenuous, less laborious task 
then tobacco, and we began to grow wheat, and we took our equipment and our people, and we engaged in what became known by history as the largest domestic slave breeding and trade program in the history of America, right here in Richmond, Virginia. Some estimates say that as many as 10,000 men, women, and children a month, up to 100,000 a year, were sold off of one of the dozen auction blocks in downtown Richmond and shipped south to the growing corporate-sized plantations. Some Modern historical sources say that from the 1830s to 1865, more than 3.5 million slaves were bred as a part part of a statewide industry and sold through Richmond and shipped out of its port and on its railroads into perpetual misery. Our prophets were built off of the seeds of pride and prejudice. And even with the Civil War and the enacting of the Emancipation Proclamation, by 1924, passed in this city, Richmond, Virginia, in this place, was something as perverse as the Racial Integrity Act, which denied interracial marriage between blacks and whites and classified American Indians as black so that all ethnic minorities would be categorized into this act. And it was not overturned in this city, in this place, until 1968. Even with the progress that came after the Civil War, the one thing that we know as Christians because of what God has done for us is that as good as the changes in the laws can be and as good as the progress that that came is, laws and, and actions can never really change the heart. And I don't need to remind you of the 60 years of the 20th century of forced segregation and Jim Crow laws that were enacted upon the ethnic minorities in this city and in this place in the Deep South. We have a deep and abiding and enduring legacy that grew up with the legacies of liberty and freedom. And it's one of evil and prejudice against those who are of a different ethnic background. That is our city. But what does it have to do with us? Aren't we past all of those things now? I didn't own slaves. You don't own slaves. Your mother and father probably didn't own slaves. Why drudge up such a painful and nasty topic? Why take the weeks that we're taking on this idea of the gospel and the sin of prejudice? Why bring it back up? Can't we all just get along? The, the snickers on your faces when I say that, when you think about the statement portray that no matter how far we come, no matter the things that we enact and try to produce, we have not quite come as far as we think we have. These things go much deeper. They cut much deeper than any law or any enactment can ever change. The law of inertia says that an object in motion will remain in motion in its direction and an object at rest will remain at rest unless it is acted upon by a force outside of itself that is equal to itself or greater than itself. Ideas, worldviews, deep-seated realities like pride and prejudice move through generations with the same force of inertia and leave in their wake a people simply to tired to do anything about it. They leave in their wake a tendency to do nothing and to simply remain unchanged. Nothing can stop, listen to me, if you take anything out of here this morning, nothing can stop the inertia of things like pride and prejudice, except for the gospel. Nothing can stop the generational pain and inertia of the deep-seated sins of pride and prejudice that remain in our hearts but the gospel. That is the only thing that can bring real, lasting, effective transformation to a people or a place. We must, as we move into this, be very wary and very careful of superficial remedies. You see, in most situations, an inadequate solution to a problem is actually more dangerous than no solution at all. Do you know why? Because if you begin to believe that the inactive solution is actually working, then you end up not actually trying to find what the real solution to the problem is and nothing actually gets done. We must be very careful when it comes to things, especially things 
such as this, especially such things as the prejudice that remains in our hearts, deep-seated in our sinful natures, to not be satisfied by superficial solutions to the problems. There was a prophet that God brought up in the time of Israel named Jeremiah. And through Jeremiah, God said, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. From God's people, God's leaders, everyone at this time deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed because they did not know how to even blush. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? We must not be found being satisfied in superficial solutions to issues like the prejudice that remains in our hearts. The answer has to go deeper than laws. The answer has to go deeper than actions. The, the issue and the resolution and the transformation has to go deeper than those things. We cannot be satisfied with superficial answers because they can never restore a people and they can never reform a nation. So I ask you as we get started, what what hope is there for this city? What hope is there for this nation? What hope is there for people if reconciliation, restoration, and reformation are not a reality for God's people? What hope is there for the rest of the world? What does our continued apathy towards the prejudice and the pride that remains in our own hearts say to the rest of the world about what really matters to God? What does it say? What's really important? In doing this series, let me say this. In doing this series, my, my hope and our hope as pastors is that we would become, by God's grace, a people who would be vigilant about putting to death the seeds of pride and prejudice that still remain in our hearts. That's our hope. That we would not become a people who would settle for superficial solutions. That when we look out of the church, we wouldn't just say, what if we just played a different kind of music? What if we just shifted the music? What if we had Ray up front a little bit more? What if we just did a few other things that looked like we really love people? To not settle for superficial answers to problems that run so much deeper than anything that we can just fix with our own intelligence. Let us not be a people that are satisfied with superficial solutions and be found by God through the course of history of being guilty of healing the hurts of his people too lightly of saying peace, peace, when in reality, yet in our hearts, there really has been no peace because we have failed to recognize the only thing that really brings peace and restoration in the seeds of pride and the wake of prejudice is the gospel itself. That's the hope. That's why we address it. And we address it because it is the absolute spiritual reality that we deal with in this city. We do not wrestle, Paul said, against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities of darkness in the heavenly places. There is a deep-seated reality to the city that we find ourselves in and a reason that God has called us in this time and in this place to be his people, to be his church, to reflect his glory. And we must be vigilant about putting to death the things in our hearts that keep us from doing that very thing. And so we talk about pride and we talk about prejudice and we talk about the history of the city and how God has sent his son to transform the people that he has called to himself in this place to reflect his grace and his mercy. So where do we go? Where do we go to be pushed past the superficial answers? Where do we go to be pushed deeper in this whole thing? Well, we go to the scriptures. And it's funny when you think about the prophet Jeremiah, who proclaimed that God's people were passing across a peace that really was not there and claiming to have healed a wound and a hurt that was not there. God called Jeremiah to his role during the kingship of a man named Josiah, whose name in fact means the Lord heals, the Lord cures, the Lord brings healing. And so as Jeremiah proclaimed, why have God's people cried out peace, peace when there was no peace. Why have they healed the wounds of God's people too lightly? Is there no physician? Is there no balm? God called up a king named Josiah, whose very name means the Lord heals. The Lord heals. 
And you find in 2 Kings 22 and 23 the story of this King Josiah. And I want us just to take a few minutes to read his story. And what I want us to see is what it really looks like when you push past the superficial realities to deal with the wounds that have inflicted themselves upon God's people because of sin. Josiah was a, was a man who, who was put in his position, we'll see when we start reading in 2 Kings 22, when he was eight years old, he came into a culture, he came into a situation, he came into a people, to God's people, Israel, it, it, with a mindset and a worldview that was opposite of the one that God had begun cultivating in his people. He came into a, an, an Israel that was at odds with God, at odds with one another. The kingdom was divided between the north and the south and Josiah was put into this place after his father Amnon who was killed by his own people for his own sins, who had led Israel into unbelievable debauchery and rebellion against God. And at eight years old, the people take Josiah and they put him, the Lord heals, in this place of leadership. And what I want us to see is how a king who comes into a culture which he did not create, into a situation that he did not put in place himself, how did he actually respond and what does the healing that the Lord is calling us to actually look like? So if you've got your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 22, we're just gonna read and talk. 2 Kings 22, verse one. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. What were you doing at eight years old? You ever stop and read? I mean, do you ask yourself these things when you read? You ask yourself these things. What were you doing when you were eight years old? Josiah was made the king of Israel, southern kingdom. His mother's name was Jediah, daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. Man, there's gonna be lots of names in here that I'm just gonna butcher. Have some fun with it. Um, they wouldn't appreciate it, but there's grace. Um, and so you have grace when you keep naming your kids all these weird names around here when we say them wrong. You know what I'm talking about. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he walked in all of the way of David his father and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. This is the introduction of Josiah. And what you would see, the reason that the writer introduces him this way is because the natural expectation from the flow of the story, from the natural history of the people of Israel is that you would expect that Josiah would act just like his dad. The natural expectation of the son of Amnon would be to be another Amnon leading the people of Israel. And the writer wants to be very clear from the very beginning, Josiah, put in at eight, you need to know something about him. He, he was like his father, David. He was like the king who was after God's own heart. He was not like his father. He followed God. He did not turn to the right and he did not turn to the left. Why, again, is this interesting? He did not create the culture that he finds himself in. The situations that he has to face, the things we're going to see him respond to, he didn't do it. He didn't participate in the rebellion. He didn't participate in the idolatry. He didn't participate in the false worship. He wasn't guilty of those things. But we're going to see something interesting about how he approached those things and how he responded to those things. Verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, he's about 26 at this time, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azalea, yeah, son of Meshulam, that's not like a bush, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that's been brought to the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house of the Lord." But no accounting shall be asked for them, for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. So what you see is that in the reign of Josiah, when he has come to the throne at 26 years old, he's following the ways of his father David, ancestor David, though his father was Amnon, and had done what he has done. He looks around at the state of Israel. He looks around at the state of his people. He looks around at the separation that exists and the idolatry that exists and the sin that exists. And he doesn't settle for superficial solutions. Quick thing you would expect would be to enact some laws. Quick thing you would expect for a 26-year-old king who has no real history of leadership is to enact some laws to make the people respect him and obey him and to settle the disputes that were existing in the land. But you don't see that happening. What you see very pointedly by the historian who wrote this is that the main issue that Josiah saw was at fault. The place you go to begin to heal the wounds of the people is worship. 
There is no settling for superficial solutions. Josiah looks at his people, looks at his sins of his people, looks at the rebellion of his people, and he notices that the temple has fallen into disrepair. The worship of the people of Israel has become so bad that the temple is actually falling apart. The place where God dwells amongst his people. The place where the worship of the true God revolved around, the sacrifices were enacted, the feasts were observed, the celebrations were observed, has fallen apart. You can imagine if no one seems to pay attention and care that the temple is falling apart, what the worship in the hearts of the people was really like. So instead of settling for some kind of law, some kind of change in the people's behavior that he could enact to engender themselves, them to him, he decides to deal with the real issue. He deals with their hearts and the worship of the people of God. And let me just say this, when it comes to the things that we are talking about, when it comes to the deep-seated pride, the deep-seated roots of prejudice and seeds of prejudice that still exist in our sinful hearts, we must be vigilant about putting them to death. And when we talk about putting to death those things in our hearts, we're talking about worship. What is most central to us? We're talking about the things that give shape to our understanding of who we are what we think bring us value, what things we think bring us meaning, what things separate ourselves to God and unfortunately in sin from one another. We cannot talk about these things without dealing with the issue of worship. What we must look at to destroy the pride and prejudice in our hearts is what we worship. Verse eight. When I see something interesting, we're getting to one of my favorite parts of the story. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So they've gone now to rebuild the temple, which has fallen apart because the people aren't worshiping, and they find a book, interestingly enough. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Obviously, they didn't know what the book was, so they had to give it to someone else to read. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants had emptied out the money that was found in the house, and they have delivered into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. The priest found a book in the temple that was falling apart that he didn't know what, what, what it was. So he had to give it to the secretary. And the secretary comes to the king and says, the priest gave me a book that I've actually read and I think you're going to want to read it. And so Shaphan read the book before the king. Do you know what this book was? It was the Torah. The first five books of our Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, had been lost in the temple and no one knew where they were or what they were and no one seemed to care. The state of the people of God had gotten so bad that the temple itself was falling apart and the priests didn't even know what the Bible looked like. They found the scrolls of the Lord and they did not even know what it looked like and had to give it to the secretary to read. Listen, if we are going to deal with the deep-seated sins that still reside in our hearts and wield their effects in our lives and amongst our people, we are gonna have to restore the book of the Lord to the right place of worship and we're gonna have to surrender ourselves to it if we are gonna hope to be changed and transformed by it. Josiah was not gonna settle for superficial changes amongst his people. He went after what was most needed and that was a restoration of their worship. And in the process of restoring the temple, the place of worship for the people, they find the Bible. And the priest, who can't even read it, and gives it to the secretary, who reads it to the king, is now going to respond to it. Why, if worship is so central to dealing with these things in our hearts, must we return the scriptures to their rightful place in understanding who we are and who God is and how we relate to him and how that transforms how we relate to one another? Why must that be so central? Why must that be the reality? Look what happens when the secretary begins to read the scriptures to the king. Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Hekiahim the son of Shaphan and Akabar the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, go and inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. What in the world was Josiah repentant for? Remember, eight years old. 
He was put in this place, ruling this people who have found themselves in a horrible situation before God, but he didn't participate in it. He didn't build any temples. He didn't build any idols. He didn't sacrifice to false gods. The writer says he actually never turned from the right or to the left all the days of his life. So why in the world when he reads the Bible is he repentant when he hears the words of the law? What in the world now, all these years later, after all that this city has been through and all that we have done, why in the world are we still talking about this? What do we have to be repentant for? Why in the world do we think if we just hug other people, the problems never go away? Josiah was not repentant for anything that he in particular did. Josiah heard the book of the Lord. He heard the Bible preached. And in the reading of the Bible, he saw God. The presence of the living and almighty God had been absent from the people, had been absent from Israel for generations. All the way back, we'll see in a minute, to the time of the judges, the worship of God had been absent from the people of Israel. And here is the Bible read in the presence of Josiah, and his heart is rendered, not because he worshiped something else, but because he saw the disrespect and the disregard for the holiness of God amongst his people. Josiah was repentant for the people's disregard of God for generations. Josiah wasn't repentant because he built anything or sacrificed anything. We're not repentant because I didn't own a slave or I didn't do anything to this person from this other place. Are you undone when you get a glimpse of God in his word for what his people have done? Are you undone at all about the disregard that God's people have had, that God's people do have across this globe for people of other ethnicities, other classes, other nationalities, other economic circumstances? Are you undone at the disregard for God's majesty and his holiness when you see him in his word? Josiah was torn asunder. He rent his clothes and tore them apart. And he said, go find out from God what I've got to do. Same thing you see in Acts chapter two when Peter preaches and the Holy Spirit falls and he preaches that great sermon in Acts and the writer says, Luke said that the people were actually cut to the heart and the first thing they say is, what do I have to do? Why do the scriptures have to be returned to the rightful place in the worship of God if the seeds of pride and prejudice are gonna be rooted out of our heart because it's in those scriptures, in the presence of the living God and in the portrait of the holiness of God and who he is and who we are that we become undone, that we become cut to the heart, that our worship becomes a right worship before God because of who he is. What does Josiah have to repent for? He has everything to repent for. Because his people have disregarded God. They've left God out. They've let the worship of God become a means to an end. We'll see in a minute just how bad that had actually gotten. Josiah, he was humble before God. And he was humbled under God's word. And if we are going to be a people who put to death in our own hearts not in the city's hearts, but first in our own hearts, the seeds of pride and prejudice. We must be humbled by the majesty of God, by the grandeur of God, by the holiness of God, by the character of God, by the grace of God, and the mercy of God presented in the scriptures. That's the only way it's gonna begin to happen. He says, what, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? One of the beautiful things that happens when we become torn asunder because of the majesty of God and the picture of God that he shows us in his scriptures and the right understanding we get of ourselves because of that is that repentance begins to take place. Real change, real transformation begins to take place. Real repentance is brought when we rightly understand who we are and who God is. Look at verse 11. Oh, we'll go back. We'll skip that. We'll keep going. Look at verse, chapter 23. Then the king, he sent in all of the elders of Judah and all the elders of Jerusalem, the north and the south, were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. Everyone, all of God's people, and he read in their hearing all of the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. 
And the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all of the people joined in this covenant. When he read the scriptures and saw a portrait of the majesty and the holiness of God and the covenant that this holy God made with this people, with his people, to never forsake them, to never leave them, to be their God. As he read the stories of God's mighty acts of deliverance and mercy and grace upon his people, and then he looked out upon his people and his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather and all the people's disregard for this majesty and for this promise and this covenant, he was undone, and he had to inquire, what must I do? And he took the word, he read to the people, and he renewed the covenant. He brought the people back to the promises of God. If we are going to put these seeds to death, we must be undone by our disregard. We must be undone by the subtle acts of pride and prejudice that still remain in our hearts, that still remain in the hearts of God's people, that still reflect themselves in our life together. We must be undone by the portrait of the majesty and the brilliance of God and scripture and undone by the sin in our own hearts and be driven back to the covenant of God of grace and mercy and promise and forgiveness. And Josiah took the word and he read to the people and they were reminded of the grace and the covenant and the beauty of God. It had been forgotten. It had been forgotten. Do I need to draw the parallels? Do I need to to tease out for you the parallels between his people and ours? Have you forgotten the covenant of God? If this much for God's people in Israel how, Israel, how much more so for us who are on the backside of what God has done for us in Christ on the cross? Maybe, maybe one of the reasons that we have been so apathetic about pursuing the pride and the prejudice that still remains in our hearts is that like the people of Israel then, we are not nearly as centered on the majesty of God and nearly as saturated by the word of God and surrendered to the word of God as we think we are. Because when we get a right understanding of who God is and who we are in light of that and we surrender ourselves to who he is and what he has done, things begin to take place. Change begins to occur. And maybe we're apathetic because we're not nearly as God-centered and Bible-saturated as we think we are. Look at verse four. What else does repentance look like? I'm gonna read this whole thing because I want you to see something. I want you to see the depth of the depravity that had grown in the hearts of God's people and I want you to see the depth of the cleansing, the repentance, and the removal of the things that stand in the presence and the worship of God that Josiah went to, the depths that he went to. Look at verse four. I love this, you're gonna love this. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal. Notice when I read this, how many of these things are actually in the temple. The worship of God, the understanding of the true God had gotten so bad amongst the people that the majority of their worship of false gods was in the temple of the true and living God. Unbelievable. Remove from the temple all the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven, and he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel, and he he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also were burnt who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and all the hosts of heaven. The kings before him had, had ordained priests to go and make idolatrous sacrifices in the temple to other gods on their behalf. Unbelievable loss of the majesty and the character and the nature of God. And he broke down, verse seven, the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance to the gates of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, 
But they ate unleavened bread amongst their brothers, and he defiled Toephah, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. The people had become so depraved in their worship that they were actually offering their children, their daughters or their sons, eight days old, to the god Molech, one of the most detestable sacrifices in all of ancient Near East history, this unbelievable bronze statue of a man about seven feet tall, holding his hands out like this, and the fingers were cut off, and his toes were cut off, and his eyes were hollow, and his nose was hollow, and his mouth was hollow, and they would fill that bronze statue with wood, and they would set it on fire, and it would get so hot that it would begin to glow red hot, and the fire would begin to shoot out of his fingers, and shoot out of his eyes, and shoot out of his noses, and the people would begin to play drums and chant, and the music would get louder and louder and louder, and they would take from a woman nearby an eight-year-old son or eight-year-old daughter and put him in the hands of Molech. This was the sacrifice that was happening in the temple of the living God. The people's worship of God had gotten so distorted. Josiah does not settle for superficial solutions to the problems of the people. He goes after the real heart of the issue. The worship of the people. He removed the horses, verse 11, that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Malach the chamberlain, which was in his precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Asherah and for the abomination of the Sidions and for Chemosh and the abomination of Moab and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon had built for his wives. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the king, son of Nabat, who had made Israel to sin. That altar at the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust, and he also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were on the mount, and he sent and he took out the bones of the tombs and he burned them on the altar and he defiled it according to the word of the Lord, the man of God who proclaimed, who predicted these things. Then he said, what is that monument I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. That was one of the great prophets of Israel. And so they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all of the shrines and all of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done in Bethel and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and he burned the bones on them and then, then he returned to Jerusalem. I read all of that because you need to see the depth of the depravity and of the abomination that had grown in the hearts of the people of God. And we need to see that right understanding of God as revealed in his scriptures and a surrendering to the majesty of God and the covenant of God as revealed into his scriptures produces a repentance that does not stop short of just changing behaviors, but it goes deep into purging the deep-seated realities of our worship and the things in our hearts that give birth to the actions of pride and the actions of prejudice that still reside in us. Repentance is not complete until it destroys the things in our souls that we have exalted in the place of God. If we want to see these things changed, if we want to really deal with the realities of prejudice, and not only in our city, but in this world, in this nation, and beyond, we're going to have to deal with the things that still remain in our heart and not settle for superficial solutions, changing behaviors and attitudes without dealing with the things that have exalted themselves in our hearts. It's cliche. I'm sure there's a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, but it does start with you. It does start with dealing with the idolatry and the worship of your own heart. Repentance is born out of a right understanding of God and a right understanding of his love and his mercy towards us and of his holiness against sin and a turning from that towards him and his promise and covenant and a removal and a destruction of the things that we have exalted in our own hearts that stand in his place. Whether it's your ethnic heritage whether it's your job, whether it's your address, whether it's how many kids you have, whether it's where you went to school, whether it's what sports you play, whether it's how successful you are, whatever it is that brings you the worship and the identity and the purpose that only God is meant to bring to you, it must be destroyed. The seeds of pride and prejudice must be rooted out, choked out, and killed at the locations of our heart. Look at verse 21. Here's my favorite part. 
if finding the Bible wasn't good enough. This is the best part. And the king commanded all the people, verse 21, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. So he discovered the character and the majesty of God. He discovered the covenant of God. He discovered the promises of God and he saw the sins of his people but he saw something else that had been forgotten by Israel. He saw something else that since the time of the judges had been forgotten by the people of Israel. He says, verse 22, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel and during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. The people had gotten so far from the character of God and the worship of God and forgotten the promises of God and the covenant of God. They had not celebrated the story of the deliverance by God of his people from sin, from slavery, the Passover. The people had forgotten to celebrate what was central to their worship of God, and that was God fulfilling his promise promise to be their God, to make them his people, to deliver them from their captives, and to take them to the land that he had promised them to be their God. The Passover had been forgotten. The central deliverance by God and redemption by God has been forgotten by the people of Israel and the right response in worship, having been undone and being restored to the covenant is the remembrance of the deliverance that's come to them because of God. If we are going to deal with these issues of prejudice, if we are going to deal with these issues of pride, that still exist in our sinful hearts. If we are going to be honest and not settle for the superficial solutions to these things, if we are going to be a people who pursue transformation and restoration, then we must be a people who are surrendered to the majesty of God as he has revealed himself in his word. We must restore ourselves to his covenant to us to be our God and to make us his people. But to do that, we must make what he has done to make that a reality, the central reality of how we understand who we are and who he is. We must remember what the Passover points to, the ultimate Passover and deliverance from slavery, sin, and death that was accomplished for us on the cross through Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. We must make the gospel the central controlling reality if we are ever going to deal with the pride and prejudice that still remains in our hearts because the gospel is the only thing strong enough to do justice to the inertia of the pride and prejudice that has rolled through this city, that has rolled through God's people for generations. The gospel must be the central defining reality to how we understand who we are inside of God and how we relate to one another. When they read the book of the covenant and they saw the Passover that had been forgotten, they were immediately reminded that it was nothing in themselves, not the fact that they were from Abraham, not the fact that they looked a certain way, not the fact that they had a certain amount of money, not the fact that they did anything to engender themselves to God, but God in his mercy chose them from all people on the earth and committed himself to them and delivered them not according to anything that they ever could have earned or anything they ever could have done. When we see the gospel when we understand rightly the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection, we realize at the core of who we are that our ethnic nationality, that our social status, that our economic tendencies, that the place we live, the things we do, mean nothing and have engendered ourselves to God in no way other than his mercy coming to us and delivering us from our sin, delivering us from our eternal separation from him, delivering us from death itself. There is nothing in us that earned any of that. And as the gospel becomes the central defining reality to how we continue to understand who we are and we can continue to understand who God is and how he has shown his love towards us, we can do nothing to exalt ourselves based on anything above anybody else. The gospel is the central leveling factor of all people. Nothing, let me say it this way, nothing can stop. Nothing can finally stop the inertia of pride and the inertia of prejudice, be it ethnicity, be it financial, whatever it may be. Nothing can stop the inertia of those things except the gospel because nothing else has the power to transform and humble 
arrogant, sinful, prejudiced hearts like yours and like mine. And if we're going to be a people who really, who really say and who really desire to see restoration and reconciliation, the ministry that God has given us as his ambassadors through the gospel, a reality in this place, we must not be a people who settle for the superficial solutions that so easily come to us, but we must be a people who are honest and say that it starts in our hearts and with our worship. My prejudice, my pride is rooted in what I think brings me what I want. And so if we're gonna see a people, a church transformed, if we're gonna see those things ripped out and destroyed in our midst, then it's got to get down to what it is that you think brings you the things that you're after and makes you who you are. It's, it's an issue of worship. God has given us in Christ all that we need to see the transformation become a reality. And as we make the gospel the central defining power to bring to end in our heart and in our midst and in our relationships, the pride and the prejudice that continues to tear cities, families, and communities apart. We have to return to what he has done to change us. We have to return to what he has done to lay waste to the things that we think make us something in his eyes. We have to return consistently to the gospel, to be undone by the sins of God's people before his majesty, before his holiness, and before his grace, and turn to him in mercy, in humility, to be changed into his image and to be his people in this city, in this time, to reflect his glory and his purposes. So I'll end it this way. And I'll ask you, what is it? What is it that we will leave behind? What will we, when history looks back at this people in this city, what will we weave into the hearts of future generations? Pride? Prejudice? Or the gospel? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you have, you have dealt with the deepest the darkest, the most divisive realities in my sinful heart. Thank you that you expose my arrogance. Thank you that you expose my pride. Thank you that you expose my prejudice. Jesus, have your way with my heart. Have your way with our hearts. Lord, let the gospel be so tangible. Let your grace be so electric. Let your mercy be so powerful in this place and in our hearts that Lord, we are undone. Lord, let us be undone by our sin in light of your holiness and your grace and your mercy. Let us be a people who pursue putting to death those things in our hearts. When we talk about being reconciled to others, when we talk about ethnic reconciliation, when we talk about social reconciliation, when we talk about the message and the ministry that you've committed to us, let us be a people who've started that in our own hearts. Let us not be a people who are all show and, and very little go. But let us be vigilant in our own hearts to root out the things that have exalted themselves against you that give birth to these attitudes. And let us do that, that we would reflect your character and your grace to the people around us, that you would be made much of, that we would cease trying to make much of ourselves and convince others to make much of us, but that we would live to make much of you. We thank you that we can come to you and we can, we can trust you to do that work in us as we commit ourselves to you because of what you've already done for us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.